This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Welcome to Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. On today's show, we're going to talk about genetic engineering, pursuing truth in a post-Christian culture, and the search for Adam. Our guest is Father Nikonor Ashiako, who is professor in the Department of Biology at Providence College. He received his PhD in biology from MIT and does research in experimental molecular biology. He's a Dominican priest, and he holds a doctorate in theology from the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. Among other distinctions, he is an investigator in the NIH Rhode Island Idea Network of Biomedical Research Excellence Program. He's the author of Biomedicine and Beatitude, An Introduction to Catholic Bioethics, and he's co-author of Thomistic Evolution, A Catholic Approach to Understanding Evolution in the Light of Faith. Father Nicanor is on the board of the Society of Catholic Scientists. Father Nicanor, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, at the 2019 annual conference for the Society of Catholic Scientists, you gave a lecture on the developments in genetic engineering and their implications, both ethically and scientifically. So what kinds of genetic engineering are you focusing on, and what are some of the scientific advantages related to them and also the ethical questions that you want us to be asking? I think most, most of your listeners are probably not aware that we, we've already entered the age of the designer babies. Mm-hmm. So we currently have the technologies available to us to design and to imagine in a very intentional way the kind of children we're going to make. And so as a Catholic bioethicist and a moral theologian, what I'm trying to do is my colleagues and I are trying to help the church think about the moral boundaries for such technology. For example, this technology could be used to great benefit to help families who have inherited genetic diseases Mm -hmm. to either cure those genetic diseases or even if if the possibility exists, to prevent the transmission of that disease to future generations. Right. So uh, I think most people are open to the possibility that this genetic engineering, this CRISPR gene editing machine could be used in a laudable way for the correction and treatment of genetic disease. I think that people begin to get uncomfortable when we start talking about changes that appear to be non-therapeutic in nature, changes that appear to enhance social and personal opportunity rather than prevent disease or to, 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 to cure disease. And so what exactly those ethical boundaries are, I think a lot of my, my colleagues and my friends who work in this area are, are, are simply sitting there and thinking about how we, can, how we can help our brothers and sisters in the Lord, in the church, and not just in the church, but in the world to move forward on this question. Who is answering that question about what's a therapeutic need and what's not and who ought to be well i think i think the you know it's very interesting because i think it's very difficult to really come up with this general conceptual definition for what constitutes therapy and non-therapy but i think people have a general sense for you know 
for therapy, for, for, for helping illness, people who are sick. So if someone's clearly sick and this medical intervention, this genetic technology can actually help them get better, that's clearly therapeutic. I think one of the things that you're going to see is that there are going to be cases that are the boundaries, cases that involve things like height, mm-hmm. uh, that are a little trickier. So, yeah. you know, if you, if you know that your child is going to be short because that your child has a deficiency in growth hormone, and now you have the, 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 the ability to uh, correct that defect, but not just correct that defect, but maybe tweak it a little bit so the kid is now 6'5". Right. Now, are you, correct, are you merely treating the growth uh, defect, or are you simply enhancing further then? And so I think these are the kind of questions we're going to be dealing with, and these are the questions that we're going to have to deal with, it, deal with this, I think, often on a case-by-case prudential basis. Are you optimistic that this is the kind of power that we can use wisely and prudently? Well, I'm optimistic that the human being was created good, Mm -hmm. but I'm also a priest of Jesus Christ, so, you know, I hear confessions all the time. And so we are weak, we are wounded, we are broken, we are tempted to ambition, we're we're tempted to pride, we're tempted to all of these other disordered vices, which in, in many ways can distort the medical and therapeutic and scientific desires that should drive the scientists, that should drive the, phys- uh, the, the physician. So I'm hoping that we as a society can be wise, that we as a society can mm-hmm. figure out appropriate boundaries. The, 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 uh, the challenge, of course, is that a lot of this technology is, that, that we're developing is going to become, in many ways, over-the-counter. You're going to be able to to order, if you know some basic biology, you can go online and order the different parts and in your backyard kind of put them together and do things with them. And so it's one thing to say that this is a technology that can be regulated. It's another thing to figure out how one would do that when you're, you know, when it's easy, is as accessible as something like fireworks. Hmm. Like once the technology is there, eventually, I mean, it is there, as you're saying. The it's technology there. is there, and it'll become more portable and cheaper. That's correct. And you, 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 you do have to have some expertise, so not just every Joe or Mary <laughs> sure. is going to be able to do it, but right. uh, people do a lot of reading online. People do a lot of looking at YouTube videos, and you can imagine where in 20 years the technology to do some of these things yeah. will be as readily accessible as some of the technology today that people put online for, say, building a bomb. Yeah, right. I mean, I can understand that because I'm almost handy around the house just on the basis of YouTube, YouTube videos, videos, right? I'm not a handy person, but I can watch somebody step by step and then start the video over and do it again and make a real mess of my plumbing, but think that I'm actually moving things forward, right? And if I were a little bit of a better uh, viewer, I would be able to do my own And plumbing. if you were more intentional about it because you were singularly driven by some ideological hmm. worldview, that you're going to try to get experts to help you do this, yes. then you can see how this could go bad really quickly. So it might seem to some like, well, isn't the easier Catholic position just to say no to the whole thing? Like, are we just opening here a bag that we don't want to open? Um, and so is it the principle and maybe the safer Catholic position to just say no out of hand to genetic engineering, not even knowing you know, the, the gradations of it? What would, you, what would you say well, to I mean, that? The Savior of the world came to alleviate suffering. Mm-hmm. He came to cure. He came to fight demons. 
And in so many ways, CRISPR, the genetic technology we're talking about, will give us unrivaled and unparalleled abilities to do that. You know, we will be able, there are families today who are struggling with genetic disease mm -hmm. and we do not know how to deal with them. And CRISPR would be one way, one, one tool in our toolbox that would allow us to alleviate their suffering and, and improve the quality of lives for, for, their, for, for these individuals and their children. So that inherent good in itself should compel us to pursue this technology in a way that will benefit not only the individual's good, but the common good as a whole. Hmm. I mean, this is, but you see, this is not, I, this, 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 this temptation to use a technology for, for evil is not just something that genetic engineers have to deal with. Right. Every technology right. can be misused and be disabused and can be used to manipulate and exploit people. And we have to figure out, as we've figured out hopefully, you know, in the past with some recombinant technology, what sort of boundaries should we have in place as a society so that we can realize the good without dealing with the, uh, with the failures, the moral mm -hmm. failures. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Father Nikonor Ashriako of Providence College, where he is both professor of biology and professor of theology. So in broad terms, how do you understand the difference that Catholicism makes or can make to bioethics? Well, I think what's most striking when I, when I have conversations with my secular colleagues is that the vision of the world we live in is so radically different, mm. right? Um, even though we don't usually talk about it in bioethics, Catholic bioethics, bioethics presupposes that we live in an enchanted world that we live in a world surrounded by angels and demons where saints are actively praying for us, mm -hmm. where the triune God is working his providential care through the intercession, intercession and prayers of the Blessed Mother of God. And so when you, when, that's not something I bring into the bioethics conversation. Right. But that actually also alters the vision of the human person. Yeah. Because now the human person is called to live forever and not, not in the way that many secular bioethicists imagine, right? So, so we, we, I, you and I are going to be here when our sun goes nova in several billion years. Right. And we'll be able to see that with our own eyes. Hmm. And when you have that eternal perspective, when you have that supernatural perspective, in a post-Christian, secular, pluralistic society, it's not gonna be surprising that our voice is going to be different. Now, our voice is also gonna be countercultural, Right. In so many different ways, and it's gonna be challenging, and it will be challenged by our peers, only because for some of them, for many of them, our perspective is not only false, but fantasy. And so, you know, we, we, we live in a world that values diversity, and I think the Catholic voice certainly enhances that, if not challenges it at times. Yeah. As a Catholic citizen, Catholic scientist, or Catholic citizen in general, I mean, the challenge, it seems, therefore, is to learn how to speak truth in a pluralistic setting, right? Which is not going to be reduced to the sandwich board on the, on the corner where it's just the yelling from one side to another. What have you found about this art of learning how to speak truth? Well, I'm a Dominican. You are. And I'm a Dominican friar. Yeah. And so I count 
St. Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval Catholic philosopher and theologian, is one of my brothers. And one of the things that I think that he has bequeathed to his brothers and sisters in the order of preachers, the Dominican order, is that in order for us to speak, we need to first listen. And I think that in a highly polarized society, one of the things we struggle with is we just don't know how to listen. Right. We're thinking about the next thing we're going to say rather than listening to what our interlocutor is talking about. And Aquinas would, would, would challenge, us, challenge us this way. He would say, look, it's not enough that you have to listen to your interlocutor, to your opponent. You have to understand his position better than he can. Well enough to articulate it well succinctly. Enough to, well right? enough to articulate it and defend it uh-huh. in a way that he or she may not be able to do so, hmm. and then go one step further and respond to that position in a highly coherent and sophisticated way. Hmm. And I think that uh, the disputed question approach, which is Aquinas's approach, the medieval scholastic approach to present, to arguing the other side, yes. allows us to argue without all the emotional baggage that tends to come into play today because we are arguing, in our view, about ourselves. So if you are arguing another person's position, I found that my students discovered that they're not actually, they're less less passionate about it (laughs) simply because at the end of the day, they're not arguing, they don't believe their identity is at stake. Mm. And in our polarized society where identities seem to drive everything, I think it's important that we need to figure out how to be not someone else, but how to be able to see the world as someone else sees the world. And so this, this method, this approach that some people may not be familiar with, you posit a question. Here's a question that's worth asking. And then it's the responsibility, in this case of Thomas, who's writing this, to now say, well, here's two or three possible ways of responding to this. But then I'm going to consult something else. I'm going to consult the tradition. I'm going to consult philosophy. And I'm going to take responsibility for a response myself, I, Thomas. And now I'm going to take the time and respond to each one of the other proposals, my interlocutors, one at a time. Where do we see this in the world today? We rarely see it. Mm. I'm a professor at Providence College, and we're trying to figure out how to incorporate that approach into our curriculum so that we can teach our students. See, one of, one of the things that's so striking is that millennials are incredibly fragile. There are numbers that suggest that up to 61% of incoming freshmen struggle with anxiety today. Right. And I think, and after 14 years of being a professor, I think part of it is that they're not sure if the views they hold are true. You know, they're, they are worried that everyone else has it right. And so there's not that certitude that's able to ground a human life. And I think teaching students how to argue in this way, where you are arguing the other person's perspective, to explore the other person's perspective, makes them see that the other person's perspective is not as mysterious and and, and doesn't have a trump card that's eventually going to come out just when you think you understood everything. Now, it humbles you. Mm -hmm. In in some ways, it humiliates you because you have to be open to the possibility that your views have to be altered and changed. But I think the search for truth is precisely that, an openness to the possibility that one, truth is attainable, 
but that two, it takes a community in order to establish that truth, and it takes a community that's willing to listen and to argue um, and to laugh and to play at uh-huh. the same time. Uh-huh. And I say this only because we tend to kill each other today in the public square. To do all of this knowing that it's not about you. It's about the truth. And it's the truth at the end that should permeate all that we do as scholars, as Catholics, as human beings. Mm. I notice in, in one of your books, Biomedicine and Beatitude, that you make a repeated appeal to the universal call to holiness throughout the book. Especially, well, maybe not only as Catholics, let's just say in general, like what does the universal call to holiness give us? And what does it demand from us? And maybe that is especially as Catholics. Well, I think I'll answer your question this way. When a lot of people think about holiness, they think about the paranormal, extra, extraordinary abilities of the saints. Mm-hmm. And yet, in many ways, the universal call to holiness, especially for the Christian, I think for all people, is a call to joy. Mm. Because I think that one of the things you discover if you look at the tradition, the Christian tradition, is that the holiest individuals are the most joyful, and they are joyful precisely because they have fallen in love with the Lord, and that love sustains them and transforms them and calls them to greatness in a hidden way. Hmm. And I think that, you know, in so many ways, my students, I know my students, they struggle with joy. They, 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 no one's quite sure if joy is something that's attainable, especially since the sun seems to be setting on the Western world, right? So if you look Western civilization, we have a Western civilization program at Providence College the sun seems to be setting again. And um, so there seems to be darkness and there's a lot of anger, resentment, envy. There's darkness, there's very little light. The universal call to holiness is a reminder that there is light behind the clouds Mm. and we have to go through the clouds to see the light who is Jesus Christ. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Father Nikonor Ashriako of Providence College, where he is both professor of biology and professor of theology. You had a comment there about the end and perhaps the end of what seems like the Western world. Let me ask you a question about the beginning, because I know you've asked this question and addressed this question before. As a biologist and as a theologian, it might seem like a simple question, but I imagine it doesn't have a simple answer. From the beginning, did Adam and Eve exist? So... It's really striking because I would actually move your comment back a little bit. It's not just as a moral theologian or as a or a biologist. I think as a human being, yeah, we want to know where we've come from. Exactly. And so the search to understand human origin origins is a pressing one, especially since for many many people today uh, who perceive a conflict between science and religion, this is one of those points where there's an apparent contradiction mm-hmm. between a religious worldview, a theological worldview, and a scientific one. And the assumption here is that the scientific one is true, and the religious one, in some way, again, is made up. Yes. And as someone who works, you know, who, who works in biology, works in theology, one of the challenges that I have struggled with, really, my whole life, is to try to bring this together, right? Because the Catholic conviction, I think it's not just the Catholic conviction, this is a a marker of reality is that 
truth cannot contradict truth. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if revealed truth says one thing and scientific truth says another thing, and there apparently appears to be a conflict, then we have to, that's a call, that's an invitation to work extra hard to resolve it. So right now I've been working on the question of a historical Adam, whether or not that is actually something that we can still talk about. One the, ancestor. One single ancestor mm -hmm. who is, in a sense, the father of all. And, um, you know, I, on the show I can't really go over the science. All I can say is that the very best science today suggests that the human population of Homo sapiens never dropped in historical time to a single pair. That, that the best, from, from all that we can look at, it looks like there was a population of about 10,000 um, Homo sapiens uh, in Africa about 100,000 years ago. And so the question now is whether or not that can be reconciled with a historical individual, the father of all, Adam. And I've argued, and I'm in the midst of writing a book actually, that one of the things we have to be very clear about is we've got to be very clear about who we're looking for as we go back in history. Because mm. I, I tell my students this, at the end of the day, what we're doing as we go back into history is to ask, every time I meet someone, is this someone like me? And when is the first time we can actually say that? And what is striking is that the archeological and the scientific evidence suggests that if we went back 150,000 years, there were a whole bunch of anatomically modern humans, these are, these are creatures that looked like us, but they were not behaviorally modern humans. They didn't behave like us. And there's a, there are a lot of people, non-Christians, non-religious secular folks, who propose that the key transition here was actually the appearance of language. And that mm. prior to the appearance of language, you had homo sapiens that looked like us, but they didn't they weren't like us. They weren't culture. They had no art. They had no music. They were not able to communicate. But after language, they could do everything that we do. They had, they had art. They had music. They had culture. And what is striking is that there's, this is disputed, but there's a pro proposal out there that the mutation that gave rise to language occurred in a single person. Hmm. And if this is the case, and there are, there's some evidence that suggests that this proposal is reasonable, then this person would be Adam. And since all of us can speak, we all carry that mutation, we must all be descended from him. And so this is a way where you can begin to examine the possibilities of reconciling. Uh, and we're not looking here to say that science confirms sacred scripture or that sacred scripture tells us about how to do science, but it's about trying to figure out how there can be coherence in truth because both of these truths, all truth comes from God, who is truth himself. There seems to be an interesting question perhaps there that if you, if let's say this hypothesis is correct and you can go back to a single person who was the first to develop language and we would perhaps call this Adam, mm -hmm. this is Adam, the first to speak. If he's the first to speak and the only to speak, to who whom is he talking he, to? Who's he talking right. to? So what's really interesting of course is um, many people assume that language evolved primarily to communicate. Mm -hmm. But if, you ask, if I ask you this question, who, who do you spend most of your time talking to? Myself. It's yourself. Right. And so there's a proposal out there that language evolves not as a social communicative tool, but as a cognitive tool. Self-reflection. So it, well, it allows us to categorize and to conceive the world 
in, in ways that allow us to manipulate it mm. conceptually. Mm. Now, as a theologian, I would say, and this is really clear, that the first person that Adam spoke to and the person that Adam spoke most to was to his father, to God. And you can see this. It's so striking. In Genesis, right, the fir- one of the first things that God does once he creates Adam is he goes and names the animals. And so you have some focus. You have a focus here on language. And if you go to Dante's Paradiso, where he, where he examines, where he's talking about Adam, uh, when Dante meets Adam, one of the things that they spend a lot of time talking about is what the original language was in the Garden of Eden. Hmm. So, so this is not modern. There's been an ancient view that there was an original language and that this original language is actually a sacred language because it allowed you to speak to God and to allow you to speak to God face to face. This seems to bring us back a little bit to what you were talking about before about the pursuit of truth in the public square among community. It, in some ways, doesn't it have to do with using speech well? It's about using speech well. It's about using speech truly, but it's also about using speech gently. Mm. Um, and, to, to, and to realize that when we speak to each other, we're inviting each other to see the world as we see the world. And sometimes, especially because we come from different cultures, we have different experiences, our perspectives of the world are so different. And so we have to invite each other, come see the world as I see the world. That's what we do, that's what we're supposed to be doing mm-hmm. when we have a conversation. And again, in a hyper-polarized, especially political discourse, this is not what you see. Yeah. Because language is being used uh, pretty much to destroy rather than to build up. Yeah. Well, we're drawing to the end of our time here, so I just want to ask you one last thing about uh, the Society of Catholic Scientists. You're a board member of the Society, um, and for those who are just becoming uh, familiar with the Society, it isn't made up of people exactly like you who are both trained in theology and trained in science. It's made, of, made up of people who are trained in sciences. It's, it's for, it's, it's primar- the membership is primarily Catholic scientists. There's a few Catholic scientists who are priests, uh-huh. a couple who are a couple who are also religious sisters. Yeah. But the vast majority of the Catholic scientists, uh, the Catholic scientists, the membership, are lay men and women who are passionate about creation yeah. in different different ways. I was just going to ask, what do you think is the significance of a society like this? Well, I think when I when I've talked to my fellow members, one of the mantras that I hear over and over again is that they often feel isolated in science because science is mission territory today Mm -hmm. and having our meeting once a year this year at the University of Notre Dame and next year actually my home institution at Providence College they have a chance to meet others like them who can pray with them while simultaneously talking science and mm. being totally geeky, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's like fellow geeks, yeah. uh, fellow nerds in the world. Uh, it's not people, quite like a Star Trek convention, not, but not quite. Because yes. you still have to pray. Yes, uh, just but, on this side of but, that. But, yeah. but exactly, but there's a sense that I know my colleagues because I know what they're passionate about. Uh. They're passionate about Jesus, but they're also passionate about cells or atoms or planets or galaxies or moons. They're passionate about time. They're passionate about DNA. Mm -hmm. And that shared passion, those shared passions bring us together because we are first, I think I would say that we would all agree, we are first Christian. We are first Catholic. And 
the scientist is, is the way that God has called us to be Catholic Christians amongst the brothers and sisters we live with. Beautiful. Well, Father Nikonor, thank you so much for joining us Thank you today. for having me. And thanks to all of you out there for sharing your time with us on Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.